We are continuing in uh, our study of the book of John. We are on John chapter 11. We are halfway through this study. And I have to tell you, week in and week out, I am overwhelmed by the profundity of this gospel book that reveals the heart of Jesus, our Christ. Week in and week out, I am overwhelmed with what I'm studying, what I'm reading, what I'm hearing. I went to a meetup last week on Sunday, and there were 17 people at this meetup to talk about John chapter 10. And God is revealing, 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 revealing. And that, to me, is the most desired place that I want to be in life as your pastor. I want to, I want to receive the revelation of God. Not in some privatized way, but in a communal way. God, precious Lord, reveal your heart to me. Ugh, I can sit in that forever. I could sing of that love forever. Let's do that next week. See what I did there? Man, I love it. So this morning we're going to dive into John chapter 11. If you need a Bible, there is a stack back here between transform and engage kiosks. You can grab a physical Bible. If you have one on your phone and promise that you're not going to be watching the Formula One race, you can take your phone out. Jason Tuttle. If uh, you uh, don't have a Bible and you want to borrow one, you can keep that one too. We'll be glad to give that to you as a gift. But let's go ahead and dive in. There is, uh, I just got to tell you, this chapter is amazing. So what we're going to do, we're going to do three things this morning, hopefully. Three big things. We're going to read really quick the first 37 verses of John, chapter 11. Then we're going to stop and talk about the problem in the text. And that might take a little bit. And I might get a little fired up. And then we're going to finish with what's the grace in the text. This is the story of Jesus raising uh, Lazarus from the dead. And so hang in there with me. Let's go. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, this Mary that we're talking about, is the one whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume out on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. We need to stop there. Jesus, or John is writing a parenthetical statement because... Mary and Martha and Lazarus at the house wiping the feet of Jesus doesn't happen until the next chapter. But Mary and Martha and Lazarus had to be so popular in John's day that when he had, brings them into the story in chapter 11, he just wants them to know this is the famous one. But the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus doesn't really begin with the pour, pouring of perfume. That's the after of what happens in this story. And so he continues. So, verse 3, so uh, the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Note the word love there. It's the word filio. It's the word brotherly love. We're going to pick this up in just a second. But here he says, your friend Lazarus is the one that you love, and it's brother on brother love, sister on sister love, friend to friend love. There's three Greek words for love. There's agape, which is unconditional, filio, filio, which is friendship love, and there's eros, which is erotic love. She says, they say, your love for Lazarus is brother to brother. Okay, just make a note of that. Here we go. Verse 4, when he heard, Jesus heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, the sickness is not going to end in death. He's not going to die. But all of this is taking place with God's glory and can be glorified, and God's Son may be glorified through this work. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and her sister, Laz and Mary and Martha, and Lazarus. Now he uses the word agape. So John puts this subtle note in. First, Jesus loves like a brother because he's human, and Jesus loves like a God because he's God. The way that Jesus loves you and me is totally embracing his identity as human and as divine. And John does not want us to miss that. I think that's very, very cool. Thank you, John. 
Uh, yeah, here we go. Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and her sister, and Lazarus. But yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Why does Jesus wait? Because God has not told him to go to Bethany yet. He waits on the Holy Spirit of God. He waits on God's call. He does not outpace the Spirit. He waits. Then, though, in this time frame, he turns to his disciples and says, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago when the Jews tried to stone you, uh, and yet you were going back there, why are you going? The story of John that we've read is every time Jesus goes and speaks to the crowd and stirs them up and causes all kinds of ruckus, uh, the Jewish leaders are picking up rocks and trying to stone him for blasphemy. Jesus announces, I am Six times leading up to that. And the I am statement, ego am I, is the, is the Greek translation of I am, the Old Testament of God's self-identification. He is claiming to be God. And they said, if we go back there, they're going to pick up stones and they're going to they're stone you and probably stone us. And Jesus says and answers uh, in verse 9, Are they or not twelve hours in daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees uh, by the world's light. It's when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. So Jesus doesn't answer the question clearly. He speaks, you know, in, in a metaphor. And after this, they said, we still don't understand. This is what they're getting into. And so he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. Our friend is that the family of God is a community. It's communal, and there's responsibility to care for our people. But then Jesus reminds them where the power and the source is of the healing, of the resurrection, of the work that needs to be done. It is our responsibility, but Jesus is the source and the power. Uh, after he said this, he went and told my friend, okay, verse 12, his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better though, right? Because they're just not the sharpest tools in the shed. So Jesus had been speaking about his death, but they thought he meant about natural sleep. And so he told them plainly, nope, Lazarus is dead. That's not the note he got. The note he got is that he was, that he was sick. But he tells them, nope, and for your sake, I'm glad. He's not glad because he's happy. He's glad because of what, what he gets to reveal. For if I was there... I'm going to go there so that you may believe, that you may believe, so let us go. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, sometimes we refer to him as Doubting Thomas, said to the rest of his disciples, well, let us go that we may die with him. <laughs> Thomas, who gets criticized for lacking faith, rallies the troops and says, nope, we're going, because if Jesus is going to get stoned, same for us. Don't take that phrase out of context. If Jesus is going to get stoned, us too. If he's going to get arrested, we're going to get arrested. If he's going to die, we're going to die. And the cause of Christ's ministry on earth was so important that Thomas declares to the whole group, yep, we're with you. We're going, you are the reason for what we do. You're the reason we wake up in the morning. You're the reason we, it's you. It's all about you. Let us go and die. I wish that John would have wrote what the response is to that, but he cuts it off and moves on to the next section. On arrival, Jesus finds Lazarus has already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary and Martha to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she ran out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, she said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And that is not a statement of uh, shame. It is a statement of acknowledgement of the power that Mary and Martha see in this Jesus. If you would have been here um, before all of this, we know you and God, you're good, you're on the same page, you're doing incredible things. We know that the world could have looked, I mean, things could be a little different. But she says, but even I know now, God, you're gonna, God's going to give you whatever you ask. We see the unity of you all. 
And Jesus says, your brother's going to rise again. And she says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Because Martha is following suit of a theological teaching about what happens to the Israelites, the Hebrews, when they die. They lay in the grave, and someday God's going to come back, and he's going to raise the dead out of the grave. I mean, they, she believes in a resurrection that's way down the road. She says, well, of course I believe that. And he goes, nope. I'm the resurrection, and I'm the life. I am the resurrection, and I am the life. Here's his next ego and me statement. I am, I am. And he who believes in me, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Well, it's interesting, last week I talked about two ways to say no in Greek, ou and me, and a third way is if you put ou and me together, it means it cannot ever be broken. It, ou me is this double negation, which means it can't. And when we read that last line, he says, um, uh, verse 26, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. That's ou me. Jesus is saying to her, if you believe in me and if you yield and surrender me, if you allow me into your life, into your heart, and me, into, uh, me in, and, you, and we become in relationship, and you're a part of the family of God, you can never, ever, ever, ever be separated from me in this life or the next, ever. That is a magnificently awesome and giant statement. And then her response to this magnificently awesome statement in which he totally deconstructs her theology and rebuilds it back up in himself, she says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world. This is the first c confession of who Jesus is going all the way back to John 4, the Samaritan woman at the well. Note that it's two women who get it before anybody else does. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The confession is, yes, you are the Christ. You are the divine, and you have come into the world for such a time as this is to save us. I know who you are. Verse 28, and after she said this, she went back and called her sister Mary. The teacher is here, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still in the place where Mary and Martha had met him. When the Jews had been with Mary in the house, were comforting her, notice how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. Now, Mary has been lying in, um, in a, a state of lament and mourning for her brother. They would have put the body on a table inside the house, and they would have waited for all the family members to come and join, and that she would have been sitting um, uh, uh, in wait, and she would have been waiting, and she would have been honoring and respecting her brother, honoring and respecting her her, um, her teaching, her, uh, her understanding of God and God's uh, presence with her, and she would have been waiting. And then after when they put uh, Lazarus in the tomb, she would go back to the house and she would wait. She would have her family that were there that would mourn with her, and they would pay professional mourners to mourn with them. This was part of the habit and rhythm and tradition. Based on how much money you had is how big your, how big your group was. And we know that they had money. We know that they were not at the bottom of the chain. They, they had money. And so there would be a large crowd with her. People paid to wail and weep and mourn and wail and weep and mourn. And all of a sudden, it's like Jesus is here. He's looking for you. Go. She picks up and she starts running. They're like, oh, she must be going to the tomb to sit and wait there as well. And so her team follows her. And then the crowds follow her. And then there's a murmur in the town that Jesus is here. And so this huge crowd goes out to meet Jesus Verse 32 says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was, she fell at his feet. Why? Because she's worshiping him. 
The sight of Jesus in the moment, even in her lament, is that she is worshiping him. She falls down her feet and says the exact same thing her sister said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, come see. And Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. And others said, could he not, could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? The word not there is the word ooh, O-U. O is a positive in the negation. So what they're saying is, he would not have died, right, if you were here, because if you were here, you would have fixed all this. There's actually a belief. They use the word but, and it almost looks like we're countering one, one response of, look how much you loved him, but others kind of criticize him. No, it really should read, um, and uh, look how much he loved him. And others even said, yeah, and if he came a few days early, we probably, the, the situation would be different. There is a positive response in the crowd. The language tells us there's a positive response in the crowd. So we're going to stop. Now we're going to talk about the trouble in the text. Now we're going to talk about the trouble in the text. Simple Bible study method, if you're reading through Scripture, is just to ask yourself four simple questions. There are actually two, but they're two parts. Number one, what's the problem in the text? Number two, how is that problem the same problem that we have? Number three, what's the grace in the text? And number four, how is that grace available to us today? It is a simple Bible study method. Now, when you get to the problem in the text, sometimes you've got to dig. Sometimes you can't find it. Sometimes you have to work for it. I read the first 37 verses and tried to figure out what the problem in the text is that his disciples aren't very sharp. No, they haven't been sharp the whole time. Jesus seems to be okay with this. I don't think that's the problem. But when I went back and studied the language around verse 33, things began to change. When Jesus saw her weeping and the crowd that came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And here's the problem in the text. Every translator is a traitor, according to my seminary professor. Every translator is a traitor because you have, to, you have to do such hard work to figure out exactly what these words mean that don't translate well and figure out what they mean in context. Deeply moved in spirit, the word spirit's there, it's not Holy Spirit, it's the internal seat of the person. Deeply moved and troubled have been softened in their biblical translation. There's probably a scope to this word. And the simple soft side is that he was deeply moved and troubled. But that's not what the word means. Embry maomai, funny word. It's not used much in Scripture to describe deeply moved. But it's used in other extra-biblical texts, just Greek writing. And it means to be so deeply angered that you snort like a horse when he's mad and agitated at someone who's provoked him. It literally means to make a guttural response out of your bones because you're so angry at a situation or someone that's caused a situation. The word for trouble is this word terasso. It's a, it's, a, it's a typical word that means troubled, but it means an internal commotion. It's a, it's a restlessness and anxiety that's brought on because of perplexity. It's, it's to have an internal body, soul, mind reaction out of anger because of something that they're experiencing. And if we go back and read this and say, 
When Jesus saw her weeping and the crowd that came along with her also weeping, he was so angry that he snorted like a horse. And deep within his body, his bones, some guttural reaction came out. And it caused him to weep, not to wail, but to weep. And he was so perplexed by what he was experiencing that his anger came out and it was being directed at somebody. And some said, boy, he really loved Lazarus. And others like, yeah, and if he was here, I think the things, thing would be different. But I don't think that's what it said. I think they took a soft stance on Jesus because dealing with Jesus as compassionate and kind and loving is a lot easier than dealing with a Jesus who is angry. It's hard to deal with an angry God. It's hard to deal with an angry God, but God gets angry. Jesus gets angry. John chapter 2. We read this week 2. Or no, we didn't. We did another passage in the story. But John 2, he goes into the temple, and he sees the Pharisees selling goods for worship to the poor that they are keeping in an oppressed state, and they are profiting in the church, in the synagogue, on the poverty of the marginalized they're, they're profiting. You came all the way here for festival, and you gotta, you got to make a, an animal sacrifice offering, and so you've got to buy the bird from us, and we're going to upcharge you. It's like going to a Panthers game, and you want to buy a beer, and it's $409. Like, you got nowhere else to go. And he gets angry, and he flips that table, and he makes that cord, and he snaps it. And he says, woe to you who turned my father's house into a market. Jesus gets angry. But it's hard to deal with the anger of Jesus. And so the translators made it soft. I don't think it is. I think it's hard. I don't think it's hard. So here's the problem in the text. What's making Jesus so angry? Why is he so angry? What is he angry at? Is he angry at Mary? Is he angry at the mourners? That's what it says. When he saw them, he got angry. What in the text would tell us that he was angry at them? I can't find anything. He loves them like a brother loves his brothers and sisters. He loves them with a divine, unconditional love. The first one shows up and falls down at his feet and says, yes, you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who's come to save us. You are the Lord. The next one comes and falls down at her feet in an act of worship. And they both announce that they think that if Jesus was there, things could be different, but they trust him because she, they know that God and, and he are one. They're all in. Where is the anger being directed? The crowd seems to think, they're positive. He loved them, and we know that he could do this. Where is the anger being directed? Well, I don't think John 11, this part up until now, gives us the context. I think we have to go back to last week, and we need to look ahead just a little bit. Well, last week we talked about Jesus saying, Woe to you, shepherds of Israel. Woe to you, leaders of my church, who have failed in your basic responsibility to care and tend for the sheep, my sheep. You have traded your duty, obligation, right, call, opportunity to care for my sheep, and you've traded it for your own self-preservation. You've traded it for your own security, your own dollar protection, your own status in life. And when the going gets tough and the tough get, I mean, the, and the thing stuff's hitting the fan, you bail, you run, you leave them. And when you leave them, the sheep are scattered. And when the sheep are scattered, the wolves show up and they eat the sheep. Woe to you. So Jesus says, I'll be their shepherd because you have failed them. At the end of that talk, it says they picked up rocks to stone him, and they put hands on him, they grasped for him, they're ready to kill him, and then Jesus slips out. So we know Jesus is angry. 
But if we look ahead just to, in the next little section, which we're not going to cover today, but we are going to cover today, it says this in verse 45. After the story of the resurrection, and that's coming, and that's the grace in the text, and it's beautiful. But after that, therefore many of the Jews that had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did, and they believed him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told on him. Some left the crowd and went and ratted him out to the Pharisees because the Pharisees were not in the crowd. The sheep had gathered once again without a shepherd. And they told him everything that he did. And the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Now, what's the Sanhedrin? Glad you asked. Sanhedrin is a council. This is a commentary by a guy named John Stott. He is really, really smart. A meeting of the Sanhedrin was summoned in verse 47. The Sanhedrin was the central court of the Jewish people. Operating under Roman jurisdiction, do not miss this, the central court of the Jewish people was under the jurisdiction of the government. It was concerned with the political and religious life of Israel on a day-to-day basis and had absolute authority within the limits permitted by Rome. Chaired by a high priest, it consisted of 70 or so members. It was mainly comprised of the Sadducees, the other party of the Pharisees, the kind of the dueling parties. But though the Pharisees were an important minority group, various shades of theological opinion were reflected within this council. Some of the more socially influential members were not especially religious. This is the court set up and designed for all religious law and some political law by a group of people given status to rule over them. And many of them became influencers who were not especially religious. And it's this court that gives this group of people the authority to rule and keep Israel in a state of oppression and maintain order. Rome said, you can be a religion under our umbrella, but it's going to be Rome, and then we're going to pluck a few of you out, and we're going to, we're going to have you fall under our jurisdiction, and you're going to lead them in all religious matters and some political matters, and you're going to create a caste system, and you're going to suppress them, and there will be no rebellion. There will be nobody gets out of line. You will behave under the Roman rule. And if you don't, Bad things are going to happen to you, the council. So what are we accomplishing, they ask? Well, here is a man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everybody's going to believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. We, we can't stand for this anymore because too many people are believing them instead of believing us. And if this apple cart gets upset, the Romans are going to show up and they're going to take away our temple and our nation. The word for temple is also the word for place. Not specifically the temple, but this is where interpreters think it's temple. And it could be because it would be temple and synagogue. But if we reread that, that says they're going to come and take away our place, which is our place of authority and our nation, we can't allow that to happen. So what happens? They begin to plot to kill Jesus. And so Jesus looks at Mary and the mourners have come without leadership. 
and he sees them in their hour of need. They are broken and lamenting and crying out for God's healing and protection and provision and direction. They are looking for leaders to lead them and guide them way in the heart of God. Precious Lord, reveal yourself to me, they're praying, and there's nobody there to walk with them. And Jesus sees them and sees the absence of leaders in their midst, and he becomes angry. I believe the anger, the, the horse nose snorting of Jesus is once again back at the religious leaders that have given up their first love and responsibility to care for the people of God and have sold it for 30 pieces of silver. It's as if God is telling the shepherds, I need you to put both arms out and I need you to create a pen and I need you to stand at the gate, and at night I need you to bring him in. Remember earlier Jesus says those that walk during the day, they walk in the light, but if you walk at night, it's dark and you stumble. Jesus is metaphorically talking about the role of the shepherd and bring them in at night and guard that door and don't let the wolves come in over the walls and protect them. Lead them into a space of protection. And then in the, in the daytime when there's light, open the gate and let the sheep out. Let them go to clean, fresh, pure water. and Let them bathe and, and sit and get clean and be refreshed and have joy. And then let them go in the green green meadows and eat and be content and then and then bring them back call them each by name and bring them in and close that gate and be their shepherd and it's as if the shepherds of Israel in the first century are like all right God we hear your plan it's pretty good but I came up with a better plan and that is I'm going to let go of this arm and I'm going to hold on to your people and with this arm I'm going to hold on to Rome because your plan is good my plan's better. Your plan's fine, but mine gives me status. Your, your plan makes sense, but mine is lucrative. Your plan works in its strange way, but here, boots on the ground, earth, my way gives me a little bit of power. And it's as if the leaders are saying, God, you're good, but I've come up with something better. Power is the elixir of a corrupted soul. Power is the elixir of a corrupted soul. You don't believe me? Go watch Game of Thrones or House of Cards. It's not sex. It's not money. It's not material possessions. It's power because power gives you all those things. Power is the elixir of the corrupted soul, and they sold out. What makes them so angry? I think it's this. I think the absence of purpose leadership and the life of God's people breaks his heart. I think it causes a disturbance in him and I think it breaks his heart. When God's leaders sell out, when they deny their first love and ignore their responsibilities in the name of power and prestige and status and security, when they ignore the weak and the sick and the injured, when they don't bring back the strays or search for the lost, when they rule harshly and brutally, when the sheep become uh, food for the, wild, for the wild, I think the heart of Jesus is broken. Compassionate, yeah. He's got compassion on the crowds, but he is angry at their leaders because their leaders have said, your way is good, but I'm going to hold on to a little bit of government power. If that's the problem in the text, is that problem relevant today? Is the church attempting to hold on to a little bit of its divine 
calling and responsibility, and hold on to a little bit of government power. I think this is totally relevant. I spend a lot of time throughout my week reading what's happening in the state of the church in America, in the world. Paying attention to what's happening in the Holy Roman Catholic Church right now, in the Eucharist. It's a story. It's significant. Paying attention to what's happening in the Southern Baptist Church. It's significant. They're struggling to get their narrative humbly proper around subjects of abuse and race in this country. And they elected someone to lead them. And that was a struggle. That was a struggle. Hear me, I'm not casting stones at the glass house. They elected someone, I think, on like 52%. It's a struggle. And that narrative is out there. Been paying attention to the church's response since George Floyd's death. What is our voice in the world? What does it mean to take care of God's people and shepherd them in this season? But so many of our influencers are attempting to hold the Bible in one hand and a political position in the other. I think it's causing confusion. I think it's causing chaos. I've watched month in and month out for the last several years, great leaders in the church fall because of abuse and fraud and power and bullying and thievery, inexcusable actions of the shepherds of God. And we saw it, and these churches are collapsing and people are being scattered. Last month, Gallup, who has been studying um, trends in America since the 19, late 1930s, came out last month and said for the first time in the last 70 years, the, the, the percent of churchgoers in America is now in the minority. The first 60, 55 years or so, it always remained around 70% of people in America went to church, somewhere between 70 and 74%, if I remember the stats right. But things started to shift around the year 2000. We are now at 47%. We have dropped 10% in the last five years. People are bailing on the church in droves. Some aren't bailing on Jesus. They're bailing on the institution and the organization. Why? Their answers are a failure of responsibility. They are no longer seen as an authority because they have abused their power. And they have an unhealthy relationship with the church and the government. And people don't want any part of this anymore. For any time that we pollute the purity of our calling as a church of Jesus Christ on earth, by the addition of a political ideology, it breaks Jesus' heart. Any time we pollute the purity of our calling as the church of Jesus Christ on earth, with the addition of a political ideology, we fail, and it breaks God's heart. I saw a flag on January 6 make its way to the Capitol, and it was an American flag, and on it was Jesus with bullet vest and a machine gun and the body of Rambo, shirtless and ripped. 
on an American flag. Gods and guns and rights and nationalism is an attempt to hold on to the purity of the church and a political ideology. And I think it breaks God's heart. <laughs> but they're not the only failures. We can be so committed to the cause that we can leave Christ in, behind us. And we can chase an effort in the name of altruism and do-goodism in the name of the cause, and we can leave Jesus out of it. And when we are part of a cause where Christ is not central, it becomes vanity, becomes an idol. And it's wrong. Thomas understood that. He saw the cause. Yes, I'm for you because you are the Lord, the Savior of the world. And so within our spectrum, there are all sorts and all sorts of examples. But anytime we pollute the purity of our calling by the addition of a political ideology, I think it breaks God's heart. Anytime our responsibility is not about people and the care and the restoration and the redemption of God's people, when we make it about our own security, when we continue to oppress and keep people at bay, we fail. When we substitute grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness for shame and guilt and oppression, we fail and the heart of God breaks. There's a calling on the church and the world and it is to care for God's people and lead them to a place of redemption and restoration. Sarah Bessie, the brilliant, thoughtful, young Canadian writer, says this, people should never be the collateral damage of your theology. Does that mean we don't talk about sin? No, Jesus was really good about that. But he said, here's a better way. Here's a better way. And when Jesus saw the collateral damage of failed leadership in the church, it broke his heart. There's a lot of talk at Warehouse right now about our vision and mission for what's next for Warehouse. We're in this unique and challenging season. But I'm telling you this right now. We, your elders and your staff and your leaders, who are super, super imperfect and make mistakes daily, There is a unified commitment to seeking the face of Jesus, our Christ, Son of God, hope for the world, and saying, precious Lord, reveal your heart to us. We have slowed down. We've waited on the Lord. We're not outpacing the Holy Spirit. We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. And we're being influenced by things like trust the story and trust the storyteller. We're being influenced by the blind man in John 9 who finally comes face to face with Jesus and Jesus says to the man that he heals who had not yet seen him yet, do you want to meet the one who healed you? And he said, yes. And he says, it's me. And he says, Lord. And immediately the text says he worshiped him. And we are being influenced by this idea that when we come face to face with the revelation of the purity and the magnificence of Jesus, that our response is to worship him. I don't want to do anything in the name of the church that is outside the centrality of Christ resurrected. He is the hope of the world. He is the light for the world. He is the bread that we need and the wine that we need. He, he is our all in all. He is sufficient. He is abundant. He's magnificent. He knows yesterday and tomorrow, and he's inviting us in, and that can never be broken, and that's the invitation. And if we're not part of that, then we should lock the doors and call it a day. And your elders and your staff 
and your leaders are efforting in this direction, and we're going to get it wrong, and we're going to make mistakes. But there is a commitment. I do not want to be part of something that is outside the centrality of Christ, magnificent and resurrected. He's the hope of the world. That's our mission. You just have to figure out how to put it on a bumper sticker, so give us a few months and we'll get there. All right, that's the problem in the text. Let's just finish. Uh, let's read the end of 38 through 44. Such an economy of words as John finishes. The whole thing is about raising someone from the dead, and he gets to the end, and it's like that. Jesus once more deeply moved. Oh, it's the same word that he used before when he was angry. Because he shows up at the tomb, and there's still nobody to care. It was a cave with stone laid across the entrance, and he says, take away the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. He's been in there four days. It would have been a cave. Often it's like four deep cut into the walls. There'd be a rock. You'd be able to roll it downhill a little bit and plug it. Hard work would be when you had to reopen the tomb to put a new body in. That just would have happened. There would have been others potentially in that grave as well. And it's been four days, and the cloth wrapping and the incense isn't going to last. And she said, do you really want to do that? You're going to ruin the party. And Jesus said, did I not tell you, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and he looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. Jesus has been praying this whole time. Next. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they might believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. What an economy of words. Jesus says, take away the stone. Why? Because the barrier needs to be removed for you to see the glory of God. Are your eyes blind? Then remove the barrier. Your ears deaf? Remove the barrier. Jesus is the one that's commanding that the barrier to be moved. So ask Jesus to remove the barrier. What is keeping you from seeing the glory of God? What is keeping you from hearing the glory of God? Then move the stone. Get rid of the barrier. And he says, if you believe, you'll see the glory of God. Repent and believe, John the Baptist began in the beginning of John. For when you repent and believe, you will experience the glory of God. And then he prays a prayer of gratitude. Thank you. That should be our response when we believe and see the glory of God. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It is an act of worship. And then Jesus has commanded us to come forth. Why? Because Jesus calls the death the light. He calls those out of the darkness into the light. He says the old will become new. The heart of stone will become a heart of flesh. Jesus, the power of his calling us into right relationship because of who he is, his identity, his work on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, all of that invites us into this new space, and that new space is so what we need. And he says, take off those grave clothes. He says, shed those things that you think used to identify you. And it says, and let him go. And Jesus is saying, now go be liberated. Take the barrier away. Believe, see the glory of God, worship in gratitude. Come forth into a right relationship with Jesus. Shed the old stuff and be liberated. Man, I think this is God's calling for this church going forward. I think this is a message that we have to get on and stay on and repeat, repeat, repeat. Come forth, come forth.
come forth. Let go of those things in the name of security and power and status and objects of material objects of possessions. Let go all of that and come back into the fold of God. Come, come, center yourselves, yield to this Jesus and worship him. This is a generous Jesus who invites us in, who radically transforms us and moves us from death to life, who calls us his friend, who lays his life down for us, saves us, and never lets go of us. And our response, I pray to Christ that it's, yes, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who's come into the world for such a time as this. God said all of this is so that, that God would be glorified and that Jesus would be glorified because God and Jesus and glorification together, it's all about the glory of God. And John Piper, the pastor uh, in Minnesota, in his most famous theological saying, his most important quote that he ever gave us is about glorification and satisfying, being satisfied. For God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Are you satisfied Our satisfaction is related to the glory of God. More of Jesus, more of Jesus, more of Jesus, less of myself. Shed the barrier, let go, let go, let go. Surrender, yield, come, worship, believe. Open my eyes, Lord. Open my ears, Lord. Let me come. Let me sit, let me rest, let me embrace, let me fall at your feet. Let me worship you. Thank you, Jesus. Precious Lord, you have revealed your heart to me and you saved me. All of John is about who do you say I am and what does it mean to be satisfied? Well, this is it. When God is glorified in us, we're most satisfied in him. And Jesus lives that out. And that's what it means to follow this generous Jesus. And that's our call, church. And it's holy and it's awesome and it's challenging. We are imperfect and we're going to make mistakes. But this is the direction I think God's calling us to. Praise be to Jesus, Lord. And so we say to you now as we continue in worship and we respond to you in song, when we say yes, with my eyes I see and I believe and with my ears I, I hear and I see and I long to come face to face with your glory and I long to come face to face with your spirit that is here that is moving me and motivating to let go of these things like power and security and status and sex and money and material, all this stuff that I think will satisfy me. You are asking me to let go, to come forth into relationship with you to shed those things, those clothes, those objects that keep us from you and to be liberated. May we respond to you, generous Jesus, with this generous invitation. May we respond positively for you are worthy.